Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As Portland's homeless crisis continues, the same story keeps playing out in neighborhoods from Lentz to St. John's. It's like a broken record. A homeless camp appears seemingly overnight. It expands. Neighbors grow increasingly irate about the trash or public safety concerns. The government comes calling to force the campers somewhere else, and a new camp pops right back up again, often in the same spots. A new program hopes to disrupt that cycle. They had been approached by outreach workers in the past who were like, what do you need? How can I help you? And then never heard from them again. And so they just come to distrust the system. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Molly Harbarger takes us to Lentz, where a team of social service workers hopes by making connections with homeless folks at campsites deemed a problem by neighbors, they can accomplish a win for everyone. Homeless people won't be swept out and lose dignity, their belongings, and a safe place to sleep, and neighbors will feel safer. We talked about the new program, the 92 homeless people who died in Multnomah County last year, and much more. So 92nd and Flavel is where the Springwater Corridor, Johnson Creek, um, of course 92nd, um, intersect. There's max lines, there's bus lines. Um, it's basically, it's a transportation hub essentially, mm-hmm. um, which also means that there's a lot of people who camp there. Um, it For years and years, it's been um, kind of a gathering spot. Um, some of the people who choose to kind of be away from services are also people who might be in the midst of a mental health crisis or have um, substance abuse issues. And so, you know, there's occasionally needles, mess, that kind of thing. And so lots and lots of complaints are generated from that area. For years, it has been cleaned. Essentially, people are encouraged to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, their stuff is cleaned up that's left behind. Um, and then within a few hours to a few days, people move back in um, and the process starts again. Now, you went out there for a, a different purpose with some of the social service providers, um, like transition projects and central city concern that are kind of, you know, two of the biggest in, in the city. What exactly did you see out there and what, what were they showing you? You know, 92nd and Flavel is not the only place that this this kind of um, high density of homeless campers exists. Um, and so the city has created, the city and the county have created a team of community health workers from Central City Concern, outreach workers who have access to housing and shelter from transition projects, um, 
there's five of them, and they go out to these really high traffic, high complaint areas. They go every single day and they try and build up connections with people. And I, I went along with them to the 92nd and Flavel area. Okay. I basically just followed as they do what they normally do, which is they start in one section and then they go tent to tent going, is anyone home? You know, we're with a navigation team. Mm-hmm. We're here. Do you need water? Do you need hand warmers? Um, we went on an October day when it started to really get cold and rainy. And so they had some warm stuff. People were asking, do you have warmer clothes? Do you have tents, blankets, that kind of thing? And so if they don't have them with them, they'll see if they can get them. What you see is that a lot of people um, are still, you know, they they create their own communities and they help each other. Um, And a lot of people who camp out there are resistant, as I mentioned, for whatever reason, to to going into shelter. Maybe it doesn't work for them. Maybe they have trauma. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe they don't want to um, go into a place where they can't be um, using drugs or alcohol. Um, And so this team goes and they just have conversations with people. They offer them services and things that they might need immediately for the night. But also, they say, do you want shelter? Have you filled out um, this form that they use to get you onto housing wait lists? Mm -hmm. Um, And for some people, you see that they know the workers because they're going every single day, which before this, the city and county, through the Joint Office of Homeless Services, um, they contract with nonprofit agencies to do this work, but no one really has the capacity to go to the same place every day and talk to the same people. And so um, when I was out there, uh, I could see that some of the people they were talking to clearly recognized these five people and knew them by name or maybe didn't, but knew what they could offer. And so um, they had a few people who were like, hey, do you have shelter? I am ready to go today, approaching them. Other people were more resistant. Some people were like, no thanks. Um, One couple, uh, you know, kind of, they had been approached a few times before and had said no. And then it was cold enough that they were finally like, yes. The idea being, if you see uh, the same face, um, develop a rapport, maybe people will be more receptive to the services that are available. Yeah, I think it starts to build up some trust. You know, a lot of the people I talked to, the campers out there, they had been, you know, they had been approached by outreach workers in the past who were like, what do you need? How can I help you? And then never heard from them again. And so they just come to distrust the system. Um, So they trust that this team of people can get them something. But also I think there is something to the idea of like, Clearly, some of those people had said no so many times before, and then the weather changed, and they were willing to be like, yes, I want to get out of the cold. And I think, you know, they see a lot of value in being there when that decision happens, um, because otherwise maybe they wouldn't be able to get themselves to shelter that night or whatever they are asking for at the moment, you know. How does this uh, new effort benefit uh, people who live in houses uh, in and around 92nd and Flavel? The idea is supposed to be that it's kind of the best of all worlds for everyone involved um, because 
they hope that if they can build up these connections, if they can get people in the services, if they can get people into recovery who want to go into recovery, if they can get um, a safer place to sleep, or if you are camping out there and you want to keep camping out there, they're like, here are trash bags, keep your place clean, and you won't get, people won't complain about you. And if people do complain about you, but you're keeping a tidy space, you're not bothering anyone, we're not going to sweep you, you know? Um, so just get your stuff together and you should be fine because right. you'll find that people, especially if they've been camping in one place for a long time, they accumulate things and they have nowhere to put those things other than the outside. And so it kind of takes over a lot of um, square footage. And so, that can lead to those, to, to the tension in the neighborhood. Exactly. Right? Then yeah. neighbors who are in houses in the area complain about the unsightliness or the needles or that kind of thing. Um, and that resentment grows. Um, so the idea is that maybe we can reduce those amount of complaints. And then if they do get people to enough people to leave an area, they can clean it and then they fence it off so that they can't come back to that area. So we haven't reached that point yet, right? Where these teams have fenced off an area or, or have they? They have, um, they had cleaned some ODOT land. Um, the state transportation department. Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, off of division. And so that was a really intensive effort where they had kind of a two week timeline. And so they just flooded the zone with people and worked really hard to get everyone into services because they knew they were actually going to have to get people out of there because um, the Department of Transportation has much more strict rules about whether people can stay on that property than the city does um, or the county does. And so um, in that case, they did go in with the idea that we have two weeks, you will be moved. Let's get everyone that we can somewhere else, warm, dry, ideally, place to sleep. And then they did fence it off to keep people out. Um, they find that snow fencing tends to work well, that orange plastic, like kind of flimsy fencing. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and I think they have worked in a, a few other places where they have tried to reduce that impact and then make that area kind of less hospitable for future camping. You mentioned earlier uh, the one point of contact. Um, folks might not be aware of what that is. Can you describe what people are calling that for and, and kind of the scope, um, if you can, of kind of where there are large sites like 92nd and Flavelle? Yeah. So um, under the former mayor, Charlie Hales, he um, had implemented this idea that instead of people who are upset about campsites or RVs calling the police, calling the fire department, complaining to the city, complaining to the county, just they had no um, central location to gather these complaints and really no organization of how to deploy resources in response to those complaints. Um, so they created one point of contact. And so it's mostly an online form. It's also an app. And so if you have a complaint about a tent or a campsite or um, an RV or whatever it is that appears to be related to homelessness, then you can fill out the form and it says, you know, where is it? What is it? Do you see needles? You can put photos. And that 
goes to this office in the Office of Management and Finance, and they get all of those complaints, and then they send out teams who go visit the site, Mm -hmm. and they evaluate the site based on um, how disruptive it is, how safe it is. So if there's like lots of um, needle caps lying on the ground, then that campsite's going to be evaluated uh, or prioritized above a site that wouldn't. Or if there's like tons and tons of trash, um, that also will boost it up. And so they take those that priority list and that's how they decide where they send out cleaning crews um, to go visit and do that clearing out process. And so it's a triage system, right? It's a triage system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so they would tell you that there's probably a lot of those complaints that never have anyone sent to them to clean them up because they just don't merit the level. But then there are the really problematic chronically problematic areas like anywhere along 205 the interstate 205 corridor um especially along the they call it the mup the multi-use path but it's like a bike and ped path that goes along there and it tends to be um another tension point because you have people who live right next to it and so the homeless campers are kind of between the interstate and neighborhoods which generates a lot of complaints um but you also have a lot around like hot spots around like um union station with the former greyhound bus station (laughs) yeah exactly i was going to say we just reported on that a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago Mm -hmm. right areas that are that are close to downtown in old town chinatown close to social services yeah exactly um let's take a break We're talking now, Molly, when it's extremely cold out. Um, This is a dangerous time for people who are living outside. And you've reported um, several years now on the the number of folks who have died um, in Multnomah County. That report came out recently for last year. Um, What can you tell us about the trends um, that are happening right now and how how many people uh, died in Multnomah County who were Um, not living uh, in a home or apartment at the time. Yeah, so this year's, um, it's called Domicile Unknown, um, which refers to when uh, um, the medical examiner investigates any um, suspicious death, so anything that isn't clearly from uh, natural causes or if it happens in a public place. And so if someone dies that they have um, investigated, that they cannot verify their address, they list it as domicile unknown. And so they take all of those at the end of the year and um, they put together a report about very generally how those people died. And so this year we saw the largest number period, but that number has increased over time. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have seen our homeless count in general increase over time. Um, So it's kind of hard to say whether the ratio is increasing. Um, But we do know that there are certain trends that stay the same every year in this um, report about how people die. And that is that 
substance abuse is very large. Within that, um, we're seeing a spike in deaths due to methamphetamine use. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen for many years uh, a lot of opiate deaths. So the meth resurgence is kind of a new thing, and especially people using the combination of both. We also usually see a lot of deaths due to what essentially is hard living. You know, it could be seen as natural causes, but, um, you know, homeless people are much more at risk of heart issues, hypertension, those kind of chronic health issues that arise when you don't have access to steady nutrition. You're constantly under stress because you're trying to find a place to live, sleep, eat, not have your stuff stolen, uh, maintain consistency, have healthy relationships with other people, right. um, sleeping outside, the cold, the heat, all of that kind of stuff puts a lot of pressure on your body. We also see that um, year over year, homeless people tend to die young. The average is about in their 40s. Um, wow. I don't know that that's something I knew, and I, I've read your <laughs> reporting. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's pretty, that's troubling. Yeah. Um, Again, largely due to that stress of trying to survive each day. And it's nearly twice as many, you know, we, I've, I'm the transportation reporter. I've reported on traffic fatalities and, you know, 43 people have died as of, you know, late October on Portland streets, but more than twice as many people have died um, who, who live outside. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting comparison point too, because um, both of those are such public visible deaths, but we tend to get much more used to um, homeless people dying because of all the other factors, mental health, substance abuse, that kind of thing that um, play into that system. Um, But one of the big highlights this year is that we saw a very stark increase in the number of homeless people who were killed in, in homicides. They died by homicide. So some of that was very violent ca- crime, um, being shot or stabbed. Um, some of it is being, you know, maybe a lot of questions around how they got there, but, you know, they were, their bodies were pulled from the river, river. either they drowned um, or had died uh, in a manner of homicide and ended up in the river. Um, I think there were about 10, which seems like a low number, but when you take a much smaller population, our homeless population by the federal census is, you know, less than 3% of Portland's population overall. So to have that many homicides in such a small demographic is is pretty jarring. We mentioned Charlie Hales earlier, um, and when he was mayor, he declared a housing emergency, and that was more than four years ago now. Um, you know, I think for a lot of folks, that was the flashpoint of seeing visible homelessness in the Portland area. We are not alone, something that Mayor Hales mentioned repeatedly. Uh, this is a national issue. This is a West Coast city issue. But, uh, you know, and Mayor Wheeler has continued that saying the same things, and they're not wrong. But, I mean, wh- what do you make of where we are now and how how folks you talk to who who are living on the streets or living in these camps are feeling and, and where we are uh, publicly with some of the initiatives that you've reported on. Are we kind of like in limbo or kind of making progress, but it's hard to, to see the light of the end of the tunnel? I'm wondering if you can handicap that for me. Yeah. 
Uh, it is kind of hard to, to say because we're kind of, you know, our homelessness crisis is directly linked to our housing crisis. And that appears to not have an end in sight, um, which means that we likely are going to continue to see people lose their housing and go to the street. And when they, when we know that once you first become homeless, you are more likely to stay homeless and your barriers to getting back into housing just increase over time. Um, and that is true of the of the whole West Coast. The whole West Coast is seeing this same trend. And, you know, to some extent, the rest of the country is starting to feel the same trend. I was just in Kansas City this summer, a place where I think a lot of Portlanders would see housing as wildly affordable. Um, but affordable housing has become their number one issue. Um, so it's, you know, it's a relative to where you live and it's, it's becoming more um, prevalent across the country. The conversation has been elevated. Uh, we just saw Trump taking an int- President Trump taking mm-hmm. an interest in homelessness, especially a lot uh, around California that has probably one of the biggest populations of homeless people spread out through the state. With that elevated conversation, you see, you always see the same sides, right? You see people who feel very compassionate, who um, see people who face a lot of barriers and um, want a very compassionate, loving response. Um, You see people who take more of a hard line around, you know, these are individual choices that people have made and... um, We need more responsibility on an individual level. But I think a lot of people have started coming more to the middle place Mm -hmm. of we need more services so that people can be. So when you are ready to make a choice to reduce a barrier that you have to housing, that is there, you know, kind of the both and. Um, And I think that you are also seeing that in Portland um, when I started covering this full-time in 2016, you didn't see the same kind of conversation around mental health that you do now. That has become very much at the forefront of a conversation around homelessness. And mental health, you know, is a symptom of homelessness. It's also a driver of homelessness. It's clearly not all of all of the driver. But people have seen that as something that we can invest in to um, help people who are living on the street and remaining on the street once they get there, which is a good example of kind of, I don't know if that's progress. I, you know, I don't know if there is even a, a way we could measure that because what we're seeing around modern homelessness now, we haven't really dealt with before. We've never like fixed it. It's only getting worse. Housing costs are only getting higher. Um, so it's kind of hard to measure that idea of progress, but it is interesting to watch the conversation change from feeling just very uncomfortable and upset with the idea that homelessness exists um, through the spectrum of, is there a way that we can fix this, even though we feel like housing costs are so out of reach for us? Um, I think Portland especially is really engaging in that services conversation right now um, in a way that maybe like LA hasn't necessarily they had their really big housing bond that they passed and then they had a services bond that they passed um, 
but that campaign messaging mostly focused still on affordable housing. And so here in Portland, you're seeing a conversation much more focused on services in a way that is maybe not unique, but is definitely a higher profile than other places. So Molly, you have been out there on the streets talking to folks um, for years now. I mean, what are you what are you hearing from from people who are experiencing homelessness now, and what what do you think they might um, might have to say to the rest of of the city who uh, to help them understand what what they're going through? You know, I think usually what people I talk to who are experiencing homelessness say is kind of maybe what you might expect from anyone who feels marginalized that they're just trying to get by like anyone else, you know? Um, For instance, uh, you'll talk to a lot of people who maybe are trying to stay sober and clean. And they experience the same issues with not wanting to be around areas where there's like a lot of drug use. But where are they supposed to go? Um, And if they do go other places, then people complain about them there. Um, In some ways, it's, you know, easier to camp around other people who are camping, but if you camp in campsites with other people, then you've created kind of enough density that you're more likely to get complained about. And so it often feels like a lot of catch-22 for a lot of people who are just trying to find a place to stay. And I think that a lot of people also try to communicate that, you know, um, a lot of people in Portland who are housed will be like, why don't you just go into a shelter if there's a bed? Then isn't that better than sleeping on the street? And for a lot of people, the answer is no, um, which creates a lot of tension. uh, And that's, you know, sleeping in a shelter is not always really fun. If you've been in one of them, it's some of them are mats on the floor. Some of them have cots. You're around everyone else in the same room, people snore, people are aggressive. Um, you, you can't know. have your dog. In, you, yeah, yeah, right. Some of them you can't have your dog. Or your or your, um, your significant other. Right. right. You have to leave at certain times of the day. Um, you know, there's a push for more lo- low barrier shelters so you can accommodate more of those needs. Um, but it's, it's not a fun experience and it for a lot of people it isn't necessarily better especially if you have trauma or PTSD or you know a partner that you rely on to help you get um, your needs met that kind of thing Um, and so I think there's a lot of those conversations that don't happen between um, people who are upset about seeing homeless people and homeless people who are um, trying to carve out a place for themselves in the city you know, I was thinking about your column recently, yeah. Um, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but I think it definitely does a good job of illustrating kind of the uh, very classic Portlander kind of like internal struggle of I want to be a good person, and I don't want to make a homeless person's life harder, um, but also what do I do? You know, what do I do when it does affect me or when it affects my safety? Um, but also without making homeless people feel like I think they're all criminals and they're all drug addicts and they're all out to get me and they're all disruptive, right. you know? 
Yeah, what um, for folks who might not have read it, what Molly is talking about is I wrote kind of a, a, a column recently about my bike commutes over the last year where I've had some pretty unusual um, instances where, uh, you know, a guy, um, I just won't belabor the point, a guy shot me in the, in the neck with some sort of device. Um, I was fine. It was scary, whatever. I called the cops, saw multiple people, you know, uh, masturbating in waterfront park so and and just stuff like what do you do do you call the non-emergency line like is it worth it um is someone going to respond and if they respond are they going to um you know respond with a heavy hand for something that really you know in the scheme of things is not the end of the world but um it's also a beautiful day on waterfront park and there's children you know so it's like this mental balancing act that that i think a lot of folks have have made and that bears out in the data where the non-emergency line is seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of calls, um, a year, which is kind of a new phenomenon. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough calculus. Yeah. And it, your column kind of coincided with a report that Street Roots, which is, um, the nonprofit newspaper, um, that reports on poverty issues, uh, did with, um, city commissioner Joanne Hardesty's office, and they did a survey of homeless people about, you know, um, you call either you call co- mm-hmm. the cops, you as a homeless person call the cops, or someone calls for services um, about your campsite or your altercation or whatever. Um, who do you want to respond? Who would? What would you like to see in? a law enforcement response or a public safety response or a mental health response. And um, the big thing you took away from that report, which back to your question of what do people who are living on the street say, is that they just want a response that treats them like humans with dignity. Um, I think, you know, probably what the subtext of that is treat us like you would treat showing up to any other like to someone's house in the west hills you know give us the same response because we're both humans who are in the midst of a public safety issue um but you know they also that report also highlights that a lot of people would like um like a crisis um counselor or a mental health worker or something that um points to the fact that there is a differentiation between, you know, getting shot in the neck where you do want a public safety response because that's scary. And that person do it to someone else. Right. Exactly. Um, or, or, and then, you know, maybe something you see in waterfront park where you're not sure where it falls on the scheme of things. Um, but that doesn't exist for us right now. Um, there's a move to have that kind of team deployed. Um, the Portland Street Response kind of coalition is building a pilot project for what that would look like. Um, but it does kind of echo your um, your question in a different way from the other side of, you know, people call the cops on us, right. people call the non-emergency line, um, we would also like to have these options as well because who do you call if you feel like you're going to, if you feel as a homeless person, you know, again, to go back to the 10 homicides, uh, 
if you feel like you're in danger, but you also know that if you call the cops, then you might you might end up arrested and then you lose your stuff and you lose your camp spot and you maybe lose your spot on a housing list because then you're in jail for 90 days or whatever. Um, that seems like a bad option too. Yeah, and maybe you've been moved from several different spots all around town and you finally found a spot where you're comfortable and safe and then you're weighing this this decision of whether whether you call the authorities and what that might mean for you. It's tough. It is. <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to your question about progress, which is it feels very hard to measure that. Um, I think that the city and county through the Joint Office of Homeless Services mm-hmm. would say that um, Portland is making progress on a lot of things. They are listening to community response. They're listening to people with lived experience and trying to shape their policies and deploy their dollars in a way that is responsive to those and harms the fewest people and helps the most people. Um, But there are all these other issues that um, it is hard at this point, since we are actually dealing with homelessness in a very concerted effort way for the first time, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in like however many decades uh, that the city has had any of these systems. Um, We don't have a lot of data to know what does work and what doesn't. So going back to 92nd and Flavelle, um, if that area is cleaned up and folks are either in housing or uh, have other services and the orange orange uh, fencing goes up, um, I guess, is that a success? <laughs> I mean, I think that is uh, the real crux of um, the story, which is we probably don't know at this point, right? It'll be interesting to circle back after a year or so and say, um, here's the data. They're collecting data on how many people they've gotten into housing, how many people they've gotten into shelter, how many people they've um, connected with services, signed up for insurance, um, sent to uh, drug and alcohol rehab. Um, But what is the outcome long-term? Have they have they just made those places inaccessible or have they made the people who would be there feel like they have other options and gotten them into those options? Um, I think that definitely remains to be seen and is probably still too early to say um, what the long-term effect of that is. Well, thanks Molly for your reporting and for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. You can find a link to Molly's stories in the episode notes. You can check out my stories on the transportation beat at OregonLive.com commuting or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Thien. A reminder to subscribe to Beat Check anywhere you listen to podcasts to hear the latest episodes. If you like the show, please leave a rating or review to help us spread the word. Until next time.